You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Legal podcasts always have caveats, so here is ours. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette. We're here to discuss national security issues in the news and give you critical baseline information, whether you've been practicing national security law for years or you're a journalist trying to understand the law or a non-lawyer eager to improve your understanding of national security issues. And I'm Elisa. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual review conference on November 1st and 2nd, 2018, to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these critical issues. We deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. Is it biased to be unbiased? All right, so let's get started. (laughs) During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBard.org forward slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topics on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org, on our Twitter at ABANATSEC, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. All right, today we continue our exploration of private national security law with Francis Q. Wong, the Chief Strategy Officer of MAG Aerospace. And Francis, it is awesome to have you here. Thanks for coming. And it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Francis, your background is fascinating. You started out life in Saigon, Vietnam, and you ended up working in the White House for President George W. Bush, serving in the United States in combat in Operation Enduring Freedom. And I'd like to hold off telling our listeners about your amazing accomplishments in the private sector. So let's just start with your early life. Well, I was born in Saigon in 1973. Um, My family left in a big hurry uh, from Saigon in 1975 in April. Uh, My father was a South Vietnamese Army officer. Uh, My mother worked with the U.S. Naval Attaché. And so 10 days before Saigon fell, um, an American uh, attaché official came to my mother and said, look, if you want to leave Saigon, which we highly encourage you to do at this point, uh, you need to bring your family to the Saigon airfield within a matter of hours. So she scooped up myself. My younger sister, she found my father, his mother, and we found ourselves on a plane, literally within hours, American military transport that took us out to Guam. And from there, uh, we were the very first wave of what would eventually become an entire refugee, technically a parolee movement of over 100,000 individuals out of uh, the Republic of, of Saigon, of Vietnam, um, starting with this effort in Saigon. Uh, we've landed in Guam. We're in processed. I still have, in fact, a a uh, immunization booklet that is stamped <laughs> all the way from Guam. It's the oldest piece of paperwork I have from my time. And uh, from there, the, after a couple of weeks, the United States took us to Camp Pendleton, California, a Marine base. My, my very first experience in a, on a military facility, but not my last. Um, and uh, we started the process of assimilation. Um, and the United States had a wonderful program there to resettle all these Vietnamese uh, parolees slash refugees. 
um, and one of them asked my father where he wanted to live. Um, and he had in his mind he wanted to grow fruit trees. And so he asked, where do fruit trees grow? And somebody with, I believe, a sense of humor, instead of telling him California right. or Florida, <laughs> said Washington State. And I think they meant the eastern part of the state. My dad got confused, and we ended up on the western part of the state, where uh, it's very wet and rainy. Um, but I ended up growing up in a, in a small town called Tumwater, Washington, where the major local industry is, is, was brewing beer. That is truly an American story. And it gets even more American, because <laughs> you go to West Point. Do you graduate the top one percent of your class? So, what brought you to West Point? It, I mean, I understand that early experience. I asked my question many times. When I was there. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a joke. West Point's a great place to be from. It's not always a great place to be. Um, no, I you know, growing up, I, I knew about my family's history. I knew that we had been evacuated out of Vietnam. I knew that you know we're there by. Uh, because the military had, had fought in Vietnam and the United States government had cared about the, the Vietnamese that worked for it. Um, but as I got older, um, that awareness grew into this, this growing sense of obligation. I really felt I owed a debt, first the, to the country in general, right, for giving me this amazing life. There's, a, there's an alternate universe somewhere where instead of being here, I'm back there. And my parents went to a re-education camp and I, was, I grew up an orphan on the streets of Saigon. That, there's an alternate existence that I'm very very keenly aware of it could have happened. But instead, I got to come to the United States, have these wonderful opportunities, this great education, and I really felt that I owed an obligation, both to the U.S. government and in general, and in particular to the U.S. military. And so I thought to myself, what better way to repay this debt I felt that I owed than to serve others the way they had served me? In other words, why not go ahead and serve in the same, very same military that had helped save me and my family. And so that's why I wanted to go to West Point, to repay that debt. Well, as the resident veteran, I uh, totally identify with a lot of what you're talking about, uh, the resident veteran on the cast. Can you uh, tell us a little bit more about your, your military service and why so much of your military work followed your time in the White House? Yeah, I have a kind of a strange and unusual kind of history of, of service. It's um, a nice way to put it. You look a little bit like a renaissance man. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, I can hold down a job, Elisa, is what you're saying. <laughs> I, uh, no, the first time I served was after West Point. I had, you know, we were statutorily obligated to serve five years in active duty and three years in reserves, and I served in my normal time as a platoon leader uh, in the Army of the late 90s, which was you know, our kind of our last vestige of our Cold War Army. Went to Germany and served in, as a military police platoon leader and got to deploy to Bosnia and the, kind of the second rotation in... Um, in the former Republic of Yugoslavia, and got to really see um, what the lack of a rule of law looks like. It was, I mean, very eye-opening. Um, I, I think it began to lay the groundwork for why I would actually enjoy my career in national security law later, because I saw its opposite, right, the, the lack of a rule of law. Um, but then got out after five years, um, and then was a lawyer for many years. And then after my White House service, um, I mobilized again and rejoined the military, um, and became part of a special forces unit. And I was the company executive officer for a company of 87 Green Berets. Uh, and we, we mobilized and went to Afghanistan. And that was, that was another eye-opening experience. I had nine years between my periods of service in the military, and a lot had changed in the military at that point in time. And I had changed. And, you know, I went from picking out uh, ties at work to picking out hand grenades, which is, you know, a different type of office <laughs> environment. You know, I still remember after my first stint in the military, I actually had put all my ribbons I got in a nice little box and put them on, on the wall. 
And when I mobilized with the Special Forces Unit, I actually had to take those ribbons down, break open the box, and put them back in my uniform <laughs> to take a photo. <laughs> and the photo was going to be used in the case of my death, right? It was a death photo. Oh, my. So if, you know, that's a... Well, that certainly <laughs> passed a poll on the podcast. <laughs> but it was just, you know, it, it was a very real reminder, like, this is what soldiers do, right? They, they go out and they serve and they put themselves in harm's way and they're willing to make that sacrifice. And so, you know, I went from being a lawyer in the White House and getting to see detainee policy being made and other types of large-scale, high-level national security issues to being on the ground at the very, very other end, and and in some cases, right, being the victim of perhaps some of the policies I worked on. (laughs) So I'm probably one of the few people to actually, like, see detainee policy being made in, in the White House and then actually having taken detainees off the battlefield in combat. Well, so that's really interesting because a lot of people, uh, you know, there's a there's a separation between the people who make policy in the White House and at the Pentagon and the people who implement it. Can you tell us like how how it looked? What what did you think? What were your impressions when you needed to implement policies that you've worked on? Yeah, so it's it's very interesting. I mean, you know, when being on the other end of the spear, right, in the policy-making process, you, you know, you, you're only as good as the information you get, right, and you try to get the best information, and you try to talk to every stakeholder, and you try to talk to folks who are implementing policy and make sure they get, you know, you get relevant pieces of data, but you just do the best you can. When you're at the other end, right, and you, you see these policies, and you kind of wonder, like, how did they get to this policy? Because the real-world implementation cannot be what they intended, and so... There is this disconnect, and I think better policy would be made if we get more folks from the operational end involved, and I know there are mechanisms to do that, right? But sometimes it's very good to also have policy people at the operational end because they help educate, right, on what's going on, and, and then can perhaps provide that other perspective as well. I will say one of the things that was uh, interesting to me was there were mo- multiple times where I saw a policy put in place because of something that happened, and it was very well-reasoned, and there was a good process that proves that policy. What was not contemplated, though, was that there was another policy that also resulted from a good process. And the intersection between those two things had not been contemplated and would sometimes result in an unintended consequence. And that happened a lot. Sure. So you talked about why you wanted to be a member of the military and be part of public service, but why did you end up going to law school? That's a great question, Nicole. Um, I, one I also asked myself when I was in law school a lot. Um, no, the truth <laughs> be told, I'm an accidental lawyer. Um, after my first stint in the military, I wanted to actually join the FBI at the time, but they weren't hiring. So I was told, look, go find something to do for three to four years and then reapply. And so I had always had an interest in the law, and so I applied to all the George schools, Georgetown, George Washington, George Mason, and I got accepted by Georgetown. So law school, here I, here I went. Um, and as so often happens, right, as John Lennon says, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. And I ended up falling in love with the law. Um, it, it appealed to my desire to serve, to make a difference, and to, to tackle hard problems. All right. Now... I think it's kind of interesting because a lot of government lawyers don't do this, but you have. You left and you became an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. to be perfectly blunt. Um, and you've done a lot of things, but let's talk about a few of them. You started a company. You basically have a law practice as well. And on top of that, um, you're so incredibly forward-leaning. It looks like you also started a business for shared workspace, which is um, extremely insightful 
um, and forward-leaning and uh, new. What, what led you to do these various things? Yeah, no, it's um, the, the path from being a lawyer to being an entrepreneur isn't, I think, necessarily an obvious one. Um, lawyers, by kind of training and design, are, you know, we're inclined to identify risks, right? We see risks everywhere, and in many cases are trying to mitigate them, right? And in many ways, the process of being an entrepreneur is the opposite, which is you, you want to drive towards risk, right? You want to, you want to see the opportunity in risk. And so um, sometimes I think my legal training, right, kind of says, oh, danger, 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 and my entrepreneurial instincts say opportunity, opportunity, opportunity. And I've learned to kind of pay attention to both of them, which is, I think, part of the the secret of being a successful entrepreneur, taking the right kinds of risks and turning them into opportunities. Um, but my, my path, my journey, when I was in Afghanistan, I received an email from one of my former Williams & Connolly colleagues, Joe Fluitt, asking if I'd be interested in joining um, the founding teams of a couple of the companies that he was about to start. Uh, one of them was a law firm and one of them was a, a government contracting company. And so when I got back from Afghanistan, I, I sat down with Joe and he pitched me on being an entrepreneur and I thought about it, and I promptly told him no for all the things I just said, right? I saw all the risks, um, you know, why would I, you know, I have this great legal career, you know, this all kind of planned out. But he had planted a seed, and, and I kept thinking about it, and I realized that this fell into the bucket of what I called the rocking chair test, right? And the rocking chair test is when you're 90 years old or 95, and you're sitting in your rocking chair looking back on your life, what are the things that you're going to regret not having done? And so this was one of those things I realized that if I didn't do, I would regret not doing. And so I called Joe back and said, look, I'm, I'm in. Let's, let's talk about this. So that's how I ended up eight years ago becoming a shareholder and a partner in a law firm that has since grown to 25 lawyers and being an owner and executive in an aerospace company that has since grown to 1,200 employees over you know, eight years on six different continents and over $350 million in revenue now. Wow. Um, and I hope you know, that some of our listeners who are thinking about all the things that they can do after being a national security lawyer heard you loud and clear. There are other options out there. You know, let your brain um, do it, other things than simply assess risk. See opportunity as well. And with a law practice and, and running an aerospace company, do you find that the sort of work you do is still connected to national security? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I used to believe that the only way to serve was in uniform or, or some other form of government service. I, I hate to say it, but before I was an entrepreneur, I, I was kind of hostile to the idea of business, right? Like, I, I was a public servant. Um, but as after being an entrepreneur for the last eight years, I've come to realize that, you know, whether you're a successful soldier or a dedicated public servant or a successful private entrepreneur, you're all, all those roles are driven by the same thing. And that's the desire to serve other people. You know, a soldier does this by putting themselves between you know, their loved ones in war's desolation. You know, a public servant does it by, you know, faithfully serving the public trust. You know, a, an entrepreneur does it by creating or providing a product or service that other people value. And that's especially true in national security, where private sector lawyers and contractors, you know, have increasingly played a critical role in providing services and products that help keep our country safe. Yeah, and to your point, too, with respect to defense contractors, you know, um, it's important to remember that going back to the Eisenhower administration, um, government can't do it all. And we do rely on the private sector and public-private partnerships are such a critical thing. And that was recognized at the time that we were in the space race. And all the national defense programs really, whether you love it or you don't, it's, it's a necessary 
part of our national defense, a part of our national security. Yeah, and, so, I, would, and I would add, you know, Lisa, as someone who really fe- you know feels called to make a difference, I feel like I've made just as much of a difference in my private sector roles uh, as I did in my public service roles. There's opportunities to to do things that affect our national security and and move it forward. There are, there are hard problems to be tackled, whether you're in government or out of government. There are interesting legal problems that need to be addressed for both um, whether you're in the National Security Council or in the general counsel shop of a, of a large you know, government contractor. And so as you know, younger lawyers have come to me and say, look, I'm considering a career in national security law, um, I tell them, look, don't rule out working in the private sector. There are opportunities there that you may find just as rewarding um, as working in the public, in the public sector. Um, of course, I always encourage people to explore the public sector because we need talented, smart, capable, you know, lawyers and other professionals, you know, serving the public trust. Um, but there are opportunities, I think, in the private sector as well. Excellent. Um, I, you know, I have to say that I think I would disappoint our listeners if I didn't raise an important issue. And frankly, that's your status as a patriotic American who happens to be an immigrant. Uh, before we even talked about doing this podcast, I, I chanced on an opinion piece that you published in the Wall Street Journal, and it was in, for our listeners, it was entitled, An Immigrant's Tale from Saigon in 75 to American Entrepreneur. Now, um, without naming political parties um, and recognizing that uh, American attitudes toward immigration are cyclical, uh, you make a compelling case for Americans to avoid xenophobia. Um, and I'd like to reframe that a little in the context of national security. How does a culture of vilification of immigrants hurt our national security, in your opinion? Uh, thanks for that question, Elisa. You know, I think you know, immigration falls into that category of, of public policy issues where you know, rational, reasonable people can and should disagree. Right? Th- these are complex, divisive issues. The best solution, perhaps the only solutions, are the result of people of different beliefs, different backgrounds, different interests, different priorities, sitting down and having a meaningful discourse, right? And a meaningful discourse requires people who vehemently disagree with one another, striving to find common ground, to being open to having their assumptions questioned, and to be willing to change their position based on new facts or circumstances. That's hard, right? And it becomes harder, maybe even impossible, where there's vilification, whether that's of the other side in the debate or, or of the people at the center of the debate, because vilification shuts down discourse. It makes it impossible to reach agreement and to find a solution. You know, when you replace facts with fallacies, when you replace analysis with anger, you're not gonna reach a solution. Or the truth. Or the at truth. At the end of the day. Correct. You know, and, and the truth is immigration is a national security issue. You know, we're a country of immigrants. Part of our strength of our country comes from its diversity. Yes, we need a strong border. Yes, we need a system of legal immigration that supports our nation's growth. We certainly need understanding there are many different groups who come to America for many different reasons. And we need an acknowledgement that, yes, there are some bad actors who will try and exploit our policies. But most of all, we need policies that reflect our values as a people, as a nation, and as President Reagan once emphasized, as the shining city on, up on a hill. So and vilification prevents us from having that kind of meaningful discourse. Well, I celebrate that answer. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that you shared that with us. You know, we're hot in the middle of this debate, and in particular today, you know, the Justice Department has uh, brought a number of cases where they're going to um, reverse 
an individual's naturalization who's been involved in terrorism. So I guess my question to you is sort of right now, where do you see us going? Yeah, that, you know, I was perhaps because I'm an immigrant or maybe because I've served overseas with the military and, you know, kind of have had the opportunity to be away from the United States and look back on it. But, you know, I still believe, you know, America's best days lie ahead. And I still believe that we as a people are going to eventually figure out these issues. You know, the passion that people on both sides display on this topic shows just how deeply we care. And when Americans care that much about something, we eventually figure it out. Look, we, we may get it wrong once or twice in the process. That's part of our charm as a people. We make mistakes and get up and, and keep at it. But we eventually do get it right. And, you know, and as for when, I'm hoping sooner, but I'll, I'll take later. And that's better than never. Um, but yeah, there, there are a lot of hard issues to wrestle with. I just hope we can wrestle with them in a meaningful way. And in a factual way as well, yes. All right, well, it's been amazing to have you here today. Thank you for your career in national security law, for your service to the United States, and um, I'm dazzled with your uh, business developments. They sound awesome. Uh, and we're privileged to have had you here, so I hope that you'll return and do another episode with us on another topic. Thanks for having me, Elisa, and thanks, Nicole, and thanks about it. And thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Tune in again soon for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff and pop vitamin D all day, or you're just smart enough to know that national security law gives you a front row seat to history, and you don't want to sit on the sidelines or watch life from a distance, then join us again next time. And remember, listening to a podcast is informative, it's great, and we're glad you're here. But social networking really isn't networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts, lunches, or conferences, and don't miss the annual review conference in Washington, D.C. on November 1st and 2nd. Check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, and check out our Facebook page. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on his or her desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.